Good morning, faith family. It's good to see you. If you got a Bible, go to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, that's going to be our text this morning. Last week, uh, we started our vision series, and we started it off with talking about our purpose, uh, our why uh, here at Berean. In fact, if you remember our purpose statement, just say it with me. If you want to cheat, it'll be on the screen. (laughs) But we exist to see our lives, our community, and our world transformed by the power of the gospel. That's the air that we breathe. That's why we exist. We want to see gospel transformation take place. Now, as we continue to build our framework for vision, we're asking the question, how do we see that coming about? What's the process? And so we ask ourselves, what's one of the clearest examples in the Bible where gospel transformation was taking place, what were those things that they committed themselves to, that they focused on, that continually brought about transformation in their lives, impacted a community, and even the world? Well, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. In fact, I want to walk you through the narrative. We'll spend a portion of every week the rest of the vision series looking at Acts. Some mornings we'll stay on it for the the sermon. Mornings like this morning, we're going to expand on it with other passages. But notice what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. Peter here is preaching the gospel. And so he's, he's preaching about Jesus crucified. Notice with me here on the screen. You'll notice that Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But what did God do? God raised him up. He's risen, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter's preaching the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection and how we can be right with God in him. That's the good news of the gospel, okay? Now, how did they respond? Acts 2 tells us that they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And the answer was to repent and to be baptized. And so it wasn't just like an external change. The gospel was proclaimed and the heart was transformed. Now, here's the question. How did gospel transformation continue as those believers joined themselves to one another? We pick it up in verse 42. It says they were devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And then notice this. Day by day, they're attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We believe that there are four primary things if we're going to see gospel transformation take place, that we have to align everything that we do around. And the first is this. The first is this. The habitual, continual, congregational gathering of believers in worship. And so we exist for gospel transformation. How? By, in part, 
gathering together for worship. That what we're doing right now has everything to do with your transformation in the gospel. And I want to show you that now here in Psalm 95. So let's expand on this and look at what the psalmist says. If you're able to stand, please do so as we read God's Word. Psalm 95 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountain are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this gathering. Now help us see what it means. Help us see why it matters. Help us see in our vision framework why this is essential to seeing our lives and even our community and world transformed by the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was a Sunday morning. The pastor was all ready to preach his sermon. The worship leader was all ready to lead everybody in songs. There were cars parked out in the parking lot, and the people were there ready to worship. There was just one kind of problem the sanctuary was completely empty. In fact, on this particular Sunday, the people that had gathered at the worship service hour didn't even get out of their car. And that would seem rather odd to most of us, to most churches, but it wasn't odd for this church in Georgia, who according to the Associated Press, had started a drive-in worship service. It's where you drive to the church, you pull at a parking spot, you turn on the radio, you listen to the worship service, and whenever you're ready to go home, you just start it up and leave. I read that and I thought, things you will never try in Minnesota. (laughs) You could do that one month out of the year here. But when the pastor was asked why they were doing this drive-in worship service, he said, we want to reach people who don't like to come inside the building and who want a more private way to worship. And everybody, everything seemed to go well until the neighbors complained because instead of amens, people honked their horns. (laughs) And there was that one Sunday where the local sports station interfered with the radio signal. And instead of sermons and songs, they got scores and stats and revival broke out, all right? And the pastor even said that this was going so well, he was considering adding an upcoming feature, a drive-through communion stand. Now, I am all about trying new things. And I've told you before, we will flex on the methods. But when it comes to the worship of God, the Bible rarely speaks of it as personal and private. 
And that seems strange to our individualistic culture. I'm not saying worship can't be personal and private. I'm just saying primarily the Bible doesn't speak of it that way. Why? Because worship in the Bible is not an event you attend during the week. It is a part of your ongoing transformation as a part of the people of God. That's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. They do not scatter to their individual areas. They see all the more the need to be worshiping together. And that's exactly the kind of urgency and urging we find in Psalm 95. Notice the priority here of gathering. In verse 1 it says, O come, let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Verse 2, let us come into His presence. Let us make a joyful noise. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. There's so much lettuce there you can make a salad. Let us, let us, let us, let us, let us, come on, let's go. And the same kind of urging takes place in the New Testament. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why such strong urging? The emphasis in the Hebrew is really strong. Come on, let's go, let's go. Why? Verse 3. For the Lord is a great God. Anybody like want to insert amen right there? Like anybody want to insert hallelujah right there? Like I don't know what you find awesome. Maybe it's ice cream. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's going up north and watching a sunset. I don't know what you find awesome, but could we just join the psalmist in saying, I want to be on the record for saying what's really awesome, what's the ultimate awesome is our great God and King. The psalmist isn't fired up like I'm fired up this morning to say, come on, let us, let us, let us, let us. Because the church is really cool, the church building, or, or you're going you're gonna to be able to meet your friends there. You might even get a free cup of coffee. We're going to sing some cool songs. No, 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 no. The psalmist is fired up at the idea of the people of God joining in the worship of God. And I would submit to you that the greatest hindrance to your being here today is forgetting why you're here today. That we have come to worship the true and living God. And lest we forget that, the psalmist reminds the people here of His majesty, of His glory. Look at verse, the last part of verse 3. And a great king above all gods... And in his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountain are his also. And the sea is his. Why? He kind of made it along with the dry land that he formed with his hands. The, the psalmist is saying, you need to be excited and see this as important because you need to know who you're dealing with. Let me, hold out your hand like this. Hold out your hand. Let me ask you, what can you put in your hand? 
You can put your car keys, you can put your cell phone, you can put your Bible. You might even be like, Pastor, I don't know if you know this, I'm pretty awesome. I can palm a basketball. <laughs> really? Woo! Let's clap for you because let me tell you what God holds in His hand. Uh, it's just the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains. But your palming of basketball is pretty cool too. What? realize the majesty of God, realize this morning the presence to whom you're in. Felix Mendelssohn, who was a great composer in the 1800s, he was visiting Europe one time and he saw this amazing cathedral. And he went in and he saw this big organ and he decided that he wanted to play, but he asked the janitor, because nobody was around, and the janitor was very resistant at first, but finally he said, okay, that's fine. And Felix sat down and he started playing, again, famous composer, these classical masterpieces that, that he had written. And the janitor, not knowing who he was, recognized the music and said, that's some of my favorite music. And Felix said, thank you so much, I wrote it. To which the man responded, I am so sorry, I did not realize I was in the presence of greatness. Please remember this morning whose presence you're in right now. He is the true and living God who holds the depths of the earth and the mountains in His hand. But it's not just the majesty of God that the psalmist reminds the people of, about. He also reminds them of the mercy of God. Look at verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Now notice the language change. Our God, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Track with me here. Like, it's awesome enough to say, "Woo! we get to worship the God who created everything, who has it in His hand. But that's not all who He is. He's also the same one that created, are you ready? You're tracking, created you. He's our maker. In other words, it's one thing to worship the God who created platypi and 50 billion stars and weird birds. It's another thing to remember this morning you're worshiping the God who took time to weave your very life into existence. Psalm 119 says that you were woven in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Does that not blow your mind? Like, God kind of has a few things already in His hands. He already has a few things to do. I don't know, like, hold the entire universe in order. But He took time to create you. And as if that wasn't amazing enough, it actually, as if it could, gets even better. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pastor. That is covenant language. In other words, anybody? Like, it's like, really? He's amazing enough, and then He created us, and that's pretty awesome. But that God's our God. We know Him. 
We belong to Him. We are His people. Listen, the majesty of God in creation will blow your mind, but the mercy of God in salvation will capture your heart. It's one thing to look at the world and be like, wow, he's really awesome. But to know that the God who was set apart in his holiness came near in his love and saved us is amazing. And if that doesn't get you ready for worship, I don't know what else to say. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That is worship language. You were not able to come near. Now you are able to draw near. Why? Because of Jesus. He is what gives you access. Isn't that amazing to think about that we have access to God through Jesus Christ. A few months ago, my son and I had the opportunity to go to a Vikings game. And uh, we actually not only got to go to a Vikings game, we got to go down on the field to a Vikings game. It was awesome. People were coming up to me thinking I was Adrian Peterson, and it was... <laughs> It was really embarrassing, I, you know, asking for autographs. No, I know we look a lot alike, but, you know, I, no, I can't do that. No, seriously, we were walking around, and I was just like, hi, don't kill me. All right, <laughs> you're really big. Uh, and it was just, we were like, whoa, this is so cool. Now, here's the thing. The ticket that I bought with my own money didn't give me access to the field. I, I couldn't get down there. I wasn't supposed to be down there, which is why the security guard came. No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. I was able to have access because I was given this. It was an access card to be able to come down on the field and be where I wasn't supposed to be. You know how I got this access card? My friend, Ben Utek, was sending, singing the national anthem that day. And he got me this access card to be down there. In other words, my relationship with him is what gave me access to a place I wasn't supposed to be. This morning, something far greater than access to a football field, we have access to God. How? Through a relationship with Jesus Christ and only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you know Jesus this morning, you have access to the worship of God. Stand amazed at the grace that has given you that privilege. He has brought you near. So the psalmist here is not just pumped up and fired up and excited about the priority of worship, but notice also the participation of worship. He says in verse 1, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise. Here's the point I want you to get. Understanding the God of worship brings about gladness in worship. You tracking with that? That's why you start with, oh, God, 
That's a good place to start for worship. And then when you're so overwhelmed with Him and the grace of God that has come near to save you, you begin to respond and do things like sing. The Hebrew there is the idea of opening up your mouth and words come out. That's not the Hebrew meaning. You know what it means to sing. And some of you would say, but pastor, I just don't like to sing. Now, I'm not trying to be controversial with you this morning, but I do have a question for you. Serious question. When did God's deserving become a matter of what we like or don't like? Ooh, there was a lot of, oh, oh, oh me. The Bible says, sing. But I don't like the style. Can I ask you another question? When did the God of heaven and earth get reduced to your style? And as I've asked you before, what are you going to do when you get to heaven and we're gathered around the throne singing a new song and it's not in the style you like? Do you think in that moment you're going to say, I think I'm just going to set this one out? I'll just be over here by myself and wait till a different song. No! You'll sing in that moment. Why? Because in that moment, it won't matter the style. It'll only matter who you're singing to. Note to self, that's all that matters now. There will be no non-participants in heaven, so you might as well start practicing now. Sing. Make a joyful noise. Bow down. The point of the text is... Worship is about participation because when you understand who God is and when you understand His grace, this comes natural. Listen, dear friends, this is not worship. You say, but maybe He's praying. I don't think so. This is not worship either. Texting in church. Oh, I'm just using my Bible app to read the Word. No, Texting your friend. It's, listen, we can do external things and the heart not be engaged. Yes. My point is, when the heart encounters the presence of God, you participate. It's like children. Have you ever, been, ever watched children? Have you ever been around children where, man, sometimes their heart is so full of joy, they don't care what other people think, They're so excited, they cannot help but to express themselves. That's awesome. (laughs) Those last two, I love those last two. They're about to break dance, right? But you know, you, you look at that and you think, man, sometimes children, their heart is so full of joy. It doesn't matter what you think about them. It doesn't matter what they look like. 
they can't help but to express the joy in their heart. And I wonder if there's some of us here this morning, we have lost that childlike joy of being in the presence of God, and our heart has become far too prideful of what other people are going to think and how we'll be viewed, rather than just letting our heart, being humbled by grace, encounter God and respond the way God calls you to respond. I think far too often we as adults are too reserved. And listen, I, that doesn't have to be raising hands. It doesn't, it's not any certain thing, but it's something. Because the psalmist is saying here, when we get together in the presence of God, participation happens. I'll give you four quick things. One is emotion. All right, you Baptist in the room, don't get nervous. Did he say emotion? How do you make a joyful noise and sing songs of praise without emotion? Jonathan Edwards writes this, Many people hear the Word of God, but what they hear has no effect on them. And neither their natures nor their behavior is changed because they are not emotionally affected by what they hear. And until they are affected, they will never be changed. You cannot separate emotion from truth. Truth is not just dry, boring. Jesus said true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Meaning, you can get all emotional, you can cry, you can run around the room, you could come up here and jump in the baptistry, you could do all kinds of things, and that doesn't mean you've worshipped. My point is, when you encounter the truth in the presence of God, emotions will follow. They will. I, I came across, a, a, there's a town in Oregon called Boring, Oregon. It's true, look it up. You can find on their website, they've got things like boring restaurants, boring schools, and you know where I'm going, say it with me, boring churches. In fact, here's the sign that you see when you drive into boring. (laughs) Now, how many of y'all don't name any names, but you want to take that sign and just put it in the parking lot of churches that you know, all right? But listen, churches may be boring. We're not boring. We're not boring. I'll come after you. We're not boring. (laughs) Hey, there may be a whole lot of churches out there that are boring, but the worship of God never is. When we encounter His grace and we know who we're dealing with, emotion follows. And not just emotion, but concentration. The psalmist says here in verse 2, let us come into His presence. Now, this is different than the Old Testament. I don't have a lot of time to explain this. But in the Old Testament, the presence of God met with the people at the temple. Now, that's not the case now. We're not saying, well, God's Spirit dwells in this room and not anywhere else. That's not what we're saying. In fact, the New Testament shift is what? The Spirit of God comes and dwells in us. So how would this apply to us? Let us enter into His presence. Now, follow me just quickly. I'm going to say this. We have to understand that there is a difference between God's general presence, that He is everywhere and He's in us, 
and God's experienced presence. What I mean by that is where we are focused on Him, we are communing with Him, and we are, we are in fellowship intentionally with Him. That would be the application for us here. It's when you're here, focus. Enter with a sense of purpose and intentionality to worship Him. And then the psalmist says, it's also with celebration. The rest of verse 2 talks about with thanksgiving. Are you here today with gratitude? Do you have some things that you could thank God for? And some of you would be honest and you would say, Pastor, you don't understand. My marriage is this close to being over. My kids are about to drive me crazy. My job is an emotional wreck in my life. Can I give you some good news right here? All eyes right here. Let me, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Isn't it good that you're not here today to worship your life? You're not here to worship your marriage. You're not here to worship your friends. You're not here to worship your job. You're here to worship a God who is always worth celebrating even in the darkest hour of your soul. And I would submit to you, all the more, I'm glad you're here because it might do you well to have an hour where you're not focused on the things of the world and you're focused on God and His glory so that you are lifted up out of your situation that's consuming your mind. It's celebration and it's also submission. In verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord. There's three verbs there in the Hebrew. They all mean bow down. You could literally read it this way. O come, let us bow down and bow down. Let us bow down before the Lord. And there's two things there, but one is a sense of surrender and submission because there's always something in our life that's rubbing up against the glory of God. And it's a sense of reverence and awe before Him. We don't we're living in a culture that I think has lost a sense of just raw awe to God. These are the kinds of things that happen when we engage with God. Now, here's what somebody's going to say to me. I can almost see this email in my inbox. I can do this by myself. I don't need people to do this. I can worship God alone. Now look right here. Here's my response. Yes, you can worship God alone, and yes, you should. Did you hear me? But that's not the point of this psalm. Nor is it the point of almost all of worship when it's addressed in the Bible. Look at the pronouns in this psalm, that's probably a word you don't often hear in a sermon. Let us sing, let us make a joyful noise, let us come into His presence, let us make a joyful noise and sing songs of praise. Verse 6, let us worship, for He is our God, we are His people. Do you see? The psalmist is calling the people of God to worship together. And that's what you see in the book of Acts. That's what you see in Hebrews. Don't neglect coming together. 
It's why in the book of Revelation, what you don't see is people going off and having their individual, personal, quiet times with Jesus. What do you see? You see a people coming together for worship in a city of God. Not just singing songs, but all kinds of worship as a people. Let me ask you something very serious and very practical. How important is Sunday morning to you? Or Saturday night? Do you see this as an essential part of your gospel transformation, of your growing in Christ? You better. Because that's what the psalmist here is pleading to the people of God about. Spurgeon told of a time when, once when he was visiting a man who had not been attending church and he, he visited him to encourage him to come and it was a very cold and winter day. They were sitting by the fire and the man just said, I really don't see this as anything that's important. Spurgeon walked over to the fire and he took a stick and he separated a couple of the coals. And in just a matter of moment, those coals started to go out. And he looked at the man and he said, quote, That's what happens in your life when you isolate yourself. The fire goes out. Don Whitney says, and I think rightly so, God will manifest His presence to you in congregational worship in ways you can never know in the most glorious secret worship. That's because you're not only a temple of God as an individual, but as the Bible says, far more often, Christians collectively are God's temple. The psalmist is passionate for the worship of God and participation in that and doing it in the community of faith. Why? And we're going to close with this. It's really interesting that this psalm ends in a somber way. You, you, you've got joyful noise, songs of praise, thanksgiving, and then all of a sudden the text turns and there's a different feel. Look at verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they'd seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. As Phil Robertson would say, that's a bummer. Why the turn? Why joyful worship followed by a warning? And this gets to the heart of this right here, friends. Let me summarize what the psalmist is doing, because I don't have the time to give you the whole background. The psalmist, I'm about to come off the stage. We got to get close here. The psalmist takes an example in the life of Israel and the life of Moses. Exodus 17, Numbers 20. 
a story where this happened. They were urged to do something. They refused to do it. And they faced spiritual consequences. You know what that was. Moses in the first generation didn't get to go into the promised land. Joshua in the second generation did. They were urged to do something, refused to do it, and suffered spiritual consequences. Here it is. Here it is. You ready? This is the profound point. And the psalmist applies that to corporate worship. He ends this pleading to come to worship with a warning of neglecting to do something and how it brought about spiritual consequences. What is the psalmist's point? When corporate worship is not a priority in your life, there are spiritual consequences whether you realize it or not. Your heart becomes hardened. That's why the writer of Hebrews uses this exact same example to the people in Hebrews. It's not a threat, dear friends. This isn't legalism. I hate legalism. This is, it would be like me saying to you, if you don't fill up your vehicle with gas, you're going to be stranded on the side of the road. Would any of you be like, how dare you say that? threaten me like that. No, you'd say that's obvious. If you don't fill up, you can't keep going. Perseverance is tied into the instruction of God. Let me put it the positive way. When corporate worship is a priority, your soul finds rest to keep on going. Paul Tripp says this, corporate worship is designed to so fill your eyes with grace that it alters the way you look at everything else. Do you see, dear friends, when you come here, when we come here together on a Sunday morning, and I've been back here preparing a dish, and I bring it out hot, and you come hungry, and we, and the gospel is front and center in our lives, it reminds us that our sins are forgiven. It reminds us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It reminds us that we have an eternal home and glory with God, and all of a sudden you find rest for your weary soul. You need that in your life more than you realize. And that's why the psalmist urges the people of God, don't neglect this, because your transformation has everything to do with your continual worship. So I ask you, what is the priority of this time in your week? Is this just another event of the many events you do? Or is this priority for you? Not in a legalistic sense, but understanding the nature of this. Let me ask you this. What is your participation when you're here in worship? And that looks different for different people. But is your heart engaged? Let me ask you the most important question of all. Can you worship? Because if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you can sing all you want, but your songs don't go past the ceiling. The only way you have access to this is by walking through the door of Jesus. For He is the way, the only way, to get to the Father.
At Berean, we exist to see our lives and our community and our world transformed by the power of the gospel. How? How? In part, it is through the habitual, purposeful, congregational gathering of believers in worship. That this is not a check on our weekly calendar. This is a renewal of our soul. Because week after week, as we have put before us the glory of the cross and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can no longer be casual spectators. We can no longer be drive-in observers. We become transformed worshipers of our great God and King. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this gift of grace to worship You. And to not just be able to worship You, but to be able to worship You in the fellowship of other believers in Christ. And there may be some here this morning that they are unable to worship because they don't know Jesus. Spirit of God, would You convict them right now and draw them to Yourself by grace? For those in this room, their heart has become callous. They've lost that childlike joy of expressing worship to You. Spirit of God, come. Pierce through the calloused heart and humble us. Whatever it is, God, You know us better than we know ourselves. Just draw us near. In Jesus. Amen.